Be anxious for nothing. How many of you have ever had this scripture weaponized against you? I have. Have you ever experienced these verses from Paul condemning you for worrying, condemning you for being afraid, condemning you for being anxious? Even worse, have you ever been told that you are in sin for having an anxiety disorder? Too many vulnerable Christians I care about with mental illnesses have been told by Christian leaders and fellow Christians that they are sinning because they have a diagnosable anxiety disorder because of these verses. So tonight I want to examine this emotion concept in Paul's letters and spoiler alert, I'm going to argue that anxious is a bad translation. How many of you watched Ted Lasso? It's a show about an American football coach who goes to the UK to coach British football or soccer. And in the third and last season, there was an episode that takes place in Amsterdam. Now, my family and I lived in the Netherlands for eight years before we moved to Wheaton. So my husband and I loved that episode. We laughed, we cried. It moved me, Bob. <laughs> We, we really enjoyed that episode, especially one particular scene that talks about a Dutch emotion concept, gezellig. The Dutch guttural G makes that hard to pronounce for Americans, but it's, it's, it starts with a G, gezellig, gezellig. And it is kind of untranslatable into American English, and the Dutch are very proud of this. If you're talking to a Dutch person for very long and becoming friends with them, they'll tell you about this emotion concept that they have and we don't. And this Ted Lasso episode is all about this emotion word and like trying to teach a British woman how to understand and experience this emotion. And it means something like being cozy, being connected, being together with friends and loved ones sharing something nice to drink, and it's this sense of togetherness. And it's not an individual emotion. A lot of Americans tend to think of emotions as something, it's an inner state that we experience within ourselves. Uh, but some other cultures experience shared emotion. It's something that happens between people. And gezelligheid, the state of being gezellig, it, it happens between people. If one person in the group is not feeling it, it's not happening. So it's a shared emotion. So when I lived in the Netherlands, my Dutch friends taught me this emotion concept. And over time, as I got to understand them and the culture, and they would point out different instances, this is gezellig, this is gezellig, I began to be able to construct that emotion myself and to know when it was culturally appropriate to feel that way and to express it. But even with all of that cultural knowledge I gained in eight years, I still missed nuances of the emotion that native Dutch people would know. When I moved back to the US and started working on my dissertation, I read a book by Bacha Mesquita, who is a Dutch social psychologist. And she wrote a lot about gezellig when she was writing on emotions. And one thing she said was, it's a winter emotion. And I thought, I never picked that up. I never picked up that nuance in any of my time there. I thought I had figured it out, but I was still missing something about this emotion word. Uh, she, in her perspective, it's like being warm around the fire and having something hot to drink. But I think even with her native explanation of this, there's still a generation gap as well. She's an older Dutch woman. And so my kids and their friends and younger Dutch people 
they would be able to feel Chazelachite sitting outside in the summer sun on a terrace having a beer together. So it's even generationally there's differences. And I tell you all that to say, if it is so hard to understand an emotion concept cross-culturally, in a culture that is not that different from ours, in a language that is not that different from ours, how much harder is it for us to understand emotion concepts in scripture separated from us by thousands of miles and thousands of years, language, cultural distance, time barriers. So I think that when we are too quick to impose our emotion concepts onto emotion concepts in the scriptural text, we're very easy to misunderstand them and misapply them. I'm a second year PhD student studying with Reverend Dr. Issa McCauley at Wheaton College, and my dissertation is on emotions in the Gospel of Luke. I'm working with two key emotion theorists. I'm doing some cross-disciplinary work between neuroscience and New Testament. And I'm looking at work from Lisa Feldman Barrett and Bacha Mesquita, who I mentioned. I love the two of them together because they've been friends for a long time and they're always referencing each other in their research. They're like um, girls' girls, like they, you know, they hype each other up. I love to see that. They're always talking about their friendship, how great their work is. Um, and so Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote a really important book called How Emotions Are Made. And she says that emotions are the meaning that our minds make from the sensations in our body. And they take into account our language and our culture and the emotion concepts we've learned over time. When we construct an emotion in a given moment, it happens fast, but it happens because of the building blocks of our lifetime leading up to that moment. So we take interoception, the sense of what's going on inside our body, and we take our prediction function, what's going to happen next, and our minds construct an emotion that is most beneficial in the moment to connect us to our culture, to connect us to other people, and to help us take action toward our goals, whether that's seeing a snake on the road and constructing fear and running away, or whether it's meeting new friends, being around a fireplace, and feeling chazelachite, and that moves us toward connection. Now, Bacha Mesquita has a complementary theory about how cultures shape emotions. She has lived cross-culturally and experienced this personally and then done extensive research. And her book is called Between Us, if you want to look it up. She says our emotion concepts come not just from inside of us, but from our parents and other socializing figures in our lives, our pastors, our teachers, the books we read, and our larger culture. That is why emotions are so culturally bound. Emotions are not universal. They're not basic and inborn to every human. Not every human is going to construct the same emotions. The ability to construct emotion is universal to all humans, the way God created us to be, but the emotions that we learn to construct over time are gonna vary between cultures and even individuals. David Constan wrote a really helpful book about emotion in scripture. And how do we translate emotion from the Bible? Bible translation is complicated. Translating emotion words is another level of complicated. And he points out that we can't really translate word for word. We really have to translate the entirety of the emotion concept. I could say that I'm translating something in Dutch and it says gezellig and I translate it cozy, which kind of gets close but misses nuance. And in the same way, I think we run into that when we do a word for word translation of emotion in scripture. Again, if I can't grasp a Dutch emotion, how am I supposed to understand uh, what Paul is talking about when he says, for example, be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4.6? In Philippians, Paul is writing to a church that he has great affection for. 
Philippi is a very long way away from both Ephesus and Rome, which are the two likely sites of Paul's imprisonment. He was probably imprisoned in Ephesus or Rome when he wrote this letter to Philippi. And if you picture a map of the Aegean, I have to transpose it. Okay, so if you're looking at the map, uh, Ephesus is here on the coast of Turkey, and Rome is over here in Italy, and Philippi, am I doing this backwards? Anyway, <laughs> Philippi is kind of like here in the middle of the north of Greece. Um, I'm planning study trips for Northern Seminary, and I'm trying to figure out how to get students to all of these places even now, and it's really complicated even now to get people to both Philippi and Ephesus on the same trip. For Paul, it was even harder. So he was a long way away from them, and he was in prison. Um, and their, their friend Epaphroditus had traveled from Philippi to wherever Paul was in prison, and it's likely that he was intended to be with Paul long-term and be like a long-term ministry companion, helper, and support for Paul. But it seems like he got very sick on the journey, so sick that he almost died. So he arrives to where Paul is, but he's very ill. And word had probably gotten back to the church in Philippi that, uh, that Epaphroditus was sick, and they were very worried about him. And Paul was very worried about him, but also was worried that they were worried. So there's just like a lot of worry going on in this scenario. Um, and Paul cares about them very much. He doesn't want them to be concerned. He wants to make sure that they're okay. So he writes this letter, and it might have been carried back with Epaphroditus going back to Philippi after he had started to recover. And it's reassuring them, and it's probable that Paul would then send Timothy later to go see them as well. And then Timothy might, after visiting them, bring back their response to Paul. So Paul uses the Greek word merimnao twice in the letter, once with a very positive connotation in chapter 2, and once with a question mark negative connotation, maybe, in chapter 4. It's also the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, don't be worried about what you're going to wear, don't worry about what you're going to eat, it's the same word. And also when he's talking to Martha in Luke 12, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things, same Greek word. Paul also uses this letter in the Corinthian correspondence. So it seems like it's an emotion concept that was familiar to Jesus and familiar to Paul. Now this is an emotion word that can be translated concern or worry or anxious but it also has additional meanings. Um, and so for us to understand this emotion word in Paul, I think we need to hesitate to map our word anxious onto it and then assume we know what Paul's talking about. In Philippians 2, if you go back to your order of service, you can see in Philippians 2.20, maybe underline that, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Here that word is translated concern. And then if you look down at verse, uh, down in chapter 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. Same word in here, it's translated anxious. Now ironically, where it actually says anxiety in the middle in verse 28, that is not the same word, and Gordon Fee has very strong feelings about that mistranslation of putting anxiety there when he doesn't feel the Greek word there has any anxiety in it. But he used, Paul uses this word in 2.20 and 4.6. I like to use um, my little otter emotion cards with my kids. 
This is one way that I'm teaching them emotion concepts. And I left them on the bench. Unio or Estelle, would you bring that box up to me? Kids learn emotion concepts from their parents. And parents can actually be intentional with what emotions they teach their kids. Thank you. My daughter Estelle really enjoys using these. There are these beautiful watercolor cards and they have these animals on them. So we have like a worried whale. We have an anxious butterfly. And it gives a little description of the emotion and how you might feel it in your body and prompts to talk to your caregivers about what to do when you feel these emotions. These are great for adults too. It's always good for us to learn more words to express our emotions and how to process them. But this definition of anxious is an uneasy, uncomfortable feeling, often related to worry or fear. Is that what Paul means in this verse? Does he, does he mean don't do this thing that you really have no control over that's happening in your body? Like when anxiety rises up, unbidden and faster than you could even process it, you're automatically bad? Is that what he's saying? Does he mean a medicalized definition, which is very often what we mean in American English when we say anxious. We often mean a mental illness. That's what it's, it's come to take on that connotation in our culture. Is that what Paul means? If you have an anxiety disorder, uh, you should stop doing that. Just cut it out. Knock it off. Stop, stop being anxious. So the question is, is merim na'o a sin? Is anxiety a sin? And are those the same question or not? Those are two different culturally bound emotion concepts. Now, John Piper does think that it's a sin. On his podcast, in regard to anxiety, he said, quote, Paul and Jesus explicitly command us not to be anxious. So to be anxious is a sin. But is that what Paul is saying? I found a pastor on Twitter who said a similar thing. Quote, anxiety is sin. Fundamentally, we become anxious because we've chosen to doubt God's good and perfect will for our lives. End quote. Have you heard that sentiment expressed in a book, in a sermon from another Christian when you try to talk about how worried you are about something? And someone called this pastor out and said, would you really say that to someone with an anxiety disorder? And he doubled down. He said, oh yeah, well, my wife has an anxiety disorder and here's what I say to her. Quote, and the worst possible thing I could do is tell her that Jesus' commands are completely out of reach and the gospel is insufficient to overcome what God clearly calls sin. To tell a person this is merely psychological is a lie and leaves her hopeless, end quote. So he's just really doubling down on his wife's anxiety disorder is sinful and he really likes to tell her this apparently. But is that what Paul wants? Like how would Paul feel about that interpretation of his letter to his beloved friends? Emotions happen in our bodies, in the midbrain, which processes faster than our prefrontal cortex. Now, the prefrontal cortex is where we make moral decisions. So we begin to construct an emotion before we can even physically make a moral decision about it. So I think that biologically speaking, there's no way that Jesus and Paul are condemning an emotion of worry, an emotion of anxiety, or a mental illness, because those things are happening without our moral decision-making. We're not choosing to do those things. We begin to construct the emotion faster than we can decide what to do with it. And that's the way God created us for God's good purposes. So I don't think he's condemning the way he made our brains to function. I found these many examples, more than I've quoted tonight, of pastors and writers 
saying that anxiety is a sin, but I actually didn't find any New Testament scholars saying that. I read a stack of commentaries on Philippians, and the scholars aren't the ones saying this, except for John MacArthur. In his commentary on Philippians, he does call anxiety a sin. But other scholars are not doing that. So there is a disconnect somehow between the scholarship and the church on how we're interpreting this emotion. So what would be a better translation? How could we translate Paul's intent more appropriately for our churches today in a way that would not condemn vulnerable people? Scott McKnight, in his new uh, The Second Testament translation, translates this as, do not be disturbed. And I like that. It's much more gentle. We don't have a medicalized meaning attached to disturbed in English the way we do to anxious. And I think that gets more at what Paul is doing. Paul is consoling them. This is a letter of consolation. It's a letter of friendship. This is not a condemning letter. We all know that Paul has written condemning letters, Corinthians, but this is not one of those. (laughs) Paul is encouraging them. He loves them. It's a very gentle and tender letter. There is no condemnation in the letter. There is no sin in the letter. That's just not what he's talking about here. So do not be disturbed might be a better meaning. Uh, One of the main lectionaries, uh, not lectionary, uh, lexicons for translating Greek gives to be unduly concerned as a possible translation for Merim Na'o. To be unduly concerned, a manner of degree, a manner of focus, a matter of priority. I think that works so much better because it's about the focus, the degree, the rumination on things that are hard and painful. Rumination can be a choice but the initial construction of of an emotion is not a choice. The more we ruminate on difficult things, the more we will predict them, and therefore the more we will construct those emotions. So there's something to be said about what we ruminate on and then what emotions we construct. So maybe stop ruminating on these things that you're so worried about is a better translation. Stop immersing yourself in them. Stop soaking yourself in them. But by prayer and thanksgiving, turn to God. And this is an encouragement It's not a condemnation. He's giving an alternative. He's giving a better way, but not a condemnation. I originally did this research last spring for Dr. Doug Moo's last class at Wheaton before he retired in a seminar on Paul's theology. And as I was writing that paper and also finishing my dissertation proposal, and my husband was traveling for work, my basement flooded and then my washing machine broke in two separate incidents, both creating a lot of laundry for a family of seven. Um, it was a lot of laundry to wash. And I was so anxious. My hands were shaking. I was having intrusive thoughts. I had this crushing weight on my chest. And I was observing, kind of stepping outside myself, well, I'm writing this term paper on anxiety, and I am really feeling anxious, and this is very ironic. I used all my therapeutic tools to try to calm myself down, but just so overwhelmed. And I said, okay, I'm going to try Paul's advice. I'm going to pray. And I prayed, God, I can't handle the mental load of laundry this week. I can't do it. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to leave the pile of dirty clothes. I'm going to do my term paper. I just can't think about laundry right now. And Mother Karen and Father Kevin called me and said, hey, we heard your washing machine broke. We'd like to wash your laundry for you. They said, just come over and drop it off, and we'll wash and dry it for you. And when I dropped the laundry off, they said, just off the cuff, hey, you don't have to give laundry another thought. And that was when I knew that this was not only a general answer to prayer or just a helpful thing, it was literally a specific 
answer to the exact prayer I had prayed, which was, I can't think about laundry. And God said, well, you don't have to because my body has extra hands and feet to care for you. Uh, By the way, I still have your laundry baskets, (laughs) which I need to return. Sorry about that. (laughs) I think that this community element is part of what Paul is saying, that we're in this together, that we care about our relationships. And so he's going to do something. He's going to send Epaphroditus back to them. He's going to write them a letter to make sure they're okay. He's going to send Timothy to them. Paul's solution is don't Don't just isolate yourself and make yourself stop thinking anxious thoughts. It's turn to God. Don't be disturbed. God cares about you, and God's people are here to care for you as well. It is an invitation to learn a new emotion concept. If you look a little further, it's the peace of God. That's a new emotion concept. It's learn this new emotion concept. You can have the peace of God which will guard your heart and your mind. Learn this, let go of that. When you start to construct anxiousness or merimnao, or don't be disturbed, when you start to construct that, try to construct peace of God, God's provision, God will take care of you. It's the same thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You don't need to worry because God's going to provide for you. And the more we practice that emotion concept over time and deliberately turn our minds to it, the more our minds will naturally construct it and we can learn and feel this new emotion. So if you're worried about many things tonight, God does not condemn you. You are not sinning. You are not lacking faith. God cares about you and God's people are ready to bear those burdens with you. Thank you, Becky. Why don't we actually practice this? So uh, we'll just take a moment to pray. Is there something that your mind has been ruminating and ruminating? Because it is worrisome. And you do feel that. Paul says, uh, present your requests to God. So uh, why why don't you do that? We'll give you some moments of quiet.